This podcast is presented by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at www.uctv.tv. Enjoy the presentation. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm thrilled to see such a large turnout today, and I've been holding off starting because it's a badge of honor with the students never to arrive at an event before it begins. So they finally trickled in, and we have a very large audience for a Sunday afternoon, for which I'm very grateful. I'm Leonard Wallach. I am the program coordinator for the Herman P. and Sophia Taubman Endowed Symposia in Jewish Studies here at UCSB. My other title is Associate Director of the Walter H. Capp Center. So many of you knew me in both uh, regards, and today we have an event that is, in fact, co-sponsored. The first thing I want to do is say that this really is a, a very special moment for the Talmud Symposium Jewish Studies here at UCSB. Today we begin our second decade of what has been, by all accounts, the most successful endowed series of events that the university has seen uh, it's an extraordinary series. It typically brings eight to nine programs here each year, famous writers, artists, scholars. And one of the things that I am most fond of about the series is that it continues to involve many of the people who are instrumental in creating it along uh, with me. And the two that I want to make reference to today are here to my right. One, of course, is Rabbi Steve Cohen from Congregation B'nai B'rith, who was very helpful uh, in 1996-7 when we first began the series. And the second one I'll be introducing soon, uh, Professor Richard Heck from the Department of Religious Studies. Today, most of all, I want to thank and acknowledge in uh, the most sincere way I possibly can the Taubman Foundation for its generous support and its vision in entrusting us with the development of this series which has made such an extraordinary impact, not only here in Santa Barbara, but throughout California, and indeed throughout the, the country and the world, because of the fact that all of our events are videotaped, as will be uh, the case today, for webcasting and also broadcast on UC television. In addition, I want to thank the very generous institutional co-sponsors here in Santa Barbara, as well as the private donors, all of whom are acknowledged in the program that's been handed to you, for their continued support of this series as well. None of it would have been possible at this level of excellence without that additional support. Finally, I want to thank Borders, uh, which supports this series through book sales, and mention, of course, that Gershom Gorenberg's two books, The End of Days, Fundamentalism and the Struggle for the Temple Mount, and also the Accidental Empire, Israel and the Birth of the Settlements from 1967 to 1977, are available for purchase and signing at this event. You may purchase them in the lobby um, from Kachita, who works for Borders, and then we'll do the signing right after Gershom's talk, and it'll be done at the table in the back rear of the auditorium. Having said all that, it's now my pleasure to introduce the person who chairs the Herman P. and Sophia Taubman Endowed Symposia Jewish Studies here at UCSB, Professor of Religious Studies, Richard Hecht. Thank you. Um, good afternoon and welcome. It's wonderful to see so many familiar friends and old-time friends uh, here in, uh, in 
Corwin Pavilion to kick off this second decade of uh, lectures and musical events and films um, that have so generously been endowed, so generously been endowed by the um, Herman P. and Sophia Taubman uh, uh, Foundation. I was thinking that uh, this is the first of, of, of our events. The second event is going to be on the 9th of December. That's a Sunday, the 9th of September, 3 p.m. It's Michael Oren, um, whose book ha on America in the, in the Middle East has won tremendous acclaim. Um, he will be speaking at 3 p.m. on power and fantasy in the Middle East at the Victoria Hall Theater, again, December 9th. But I was thinking about the second decade. That's, this is our 11th year. And I was thinking that uh, of all the people we have been privileged to learn from over the course of now a decade and the first year, how many of you were here when Art Spiegelman uh, spoke for the first, it was the first Taubman event in Campbell Hall? Wasn't that amazing? That's uh, 11 years ago. Um, we've had other people, and I hope you'll let me just share some of their names for, the, for memory's sake. Uh, Bernard-Henri Lévy, Ambassador Dennis Ross, Alvin Rosenfeld, Tom Segev, Amos Oz, Leah Rabin, Rabbi Daniel uh, Gordas, Morris Dees, Rabbi Judith Plasco, Ellie Wiesel, Chava Alberstein and her band. We've had some musical events and a lot of films, too. Uh, Lawrence Schiffman, Ruth Ellen Gruber, Rabbi James Rudin, and Akbar Ahmed. Of course, the voices of some of the people we've learned from over the years, like Yehuda Amichai, and Jacques Derrida, and Leah Rabin, and Arthur Hertzberg have been stilled, but they still have made an important contribution to all of us. Um, they've taken us over the first decade from the Hebrew Bible to the Dead Sea Scrolls to Kabbalah, the Shoah, Eastern European Jews, American Jews, contemporary Jewish life and thought, film, music, Israel, modern Hebrew literature, and the American and American Jewish literature. All of that thanks to the generosity of the Taubman trustees, and we thank you very, very much. In Introducing um, Gershom Gorenberg to you, it's like actually welcoming a Californian home. He wasn't born in, the United, in California, he was born in St. Louis, but at a very early age came to California. Um, he went to a University of California campus, namely Santa Cruz, where he graduated in 1976. 1977, he of course went off to Israel, where he uh, uh, resides um, and lives um, at the present time. He is an American educated journalist and he has lived in Jerusalem since 1977 as this beautiful little brochure will tell you among his accomplishments are three I think very important books. One entitled Shalom Friend, The Life and Legacy of Yitzhak Rabin which was the winner of the National Jewish Book Award. Um, this is a very important book. He's actually going to talk about it. I, I got it to show you. This is show and tell. My students, sometimes I bring books, right, to class. 
So the end of days, uh, fundamentalism and the struggle for the Temple Mount. Um, um, this is um, a wonderful, wonderful book, as we're going to hear shortly. Um, and his most recent book, The Accidental Empire, Israel and the Birth of the Settlements, 1966 through 1977, that was published in 2006 and has achieved tremendous acclaim uh, from its uh, a wide readership. Gorenberg has served as the editor and, the, and writer for the Jerusalem Report from 1983 until 1990. Um, he has written uh, as a senior correspondent for the American Prospect. He's a regular contributor to the New Republic. He has written for the Atlantic Monthly, and he told me that there is an article in the works um, for the Atlantic Monthly. Um, He's written for the New York Times Magazine, the Washington Post, the Los Angeles Times, Haaretz, and Ma'ariv. Um, his topic today is a very, 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 very important topic, and it's one that Leonard and I were particularly interested in having addressed, and that is the Temple Mount, the Har Habayat, or as the Muslims call it, Al Haram uh, Sharif. Um, without us understanding that component, in the contemporary politics of Israel and the Palestinians, uh, we will not understand why it is so difficult to achieve peace between these two peoples. So it's a great pleasure to welcome you home somewhat. It's halfway between Woodland Hills and Santa Cruz. Will you now welcome Gershom Gorenberg? Thank you very, very much. Um, I'd like to thank Leonard and Richard and most of all the Taubman Foundation for making it possible for me to be here today with you. Uh, the story is told that a Jew was once forced to leave the land of his birth and came to live in Jerusalem. And so he prayed, Oh God, for thousands of years Jews have prayed to return to Zion, and now it had to happen to me. At, at first glance, there is a really absurd gap between the religious ideals and hopes connected to the city of Jerusalem and particularly to the religious core of Jerusalem, the Temple Mount, and the reality of life in Jerusalem, which so often includes conflict and even bloodshed. And yet it's precisely because Jerusalem is a symbol that it is an, an arena for conflict. The place that more than any other place on the globe is sacred to large numbers of people is also the most contested spot on earth. And because I am a religious person and because I live in Jerusalem, I find this disturbing. It's something that demands understanding. And so everything I discuss with you today is part of my personal effort to get to the heart of the riddle of why a place that is sacred is also a place of such conflict. And much of what I've spent the last 24 years as a journalist in Israel uh, has been trying to understand that riddle. I'm going to begin with some trick questions. I'm not asking you to answer them. It's a little bit large of a group for discussion section dynamics. But just to think about, the first question simply is, why is there a city at Jerusalem? Why is there a city there? 
think about that for a second. Why, why is a city located at that spot on Earth? There is no oil. There is no river. The trade routes do not cross there. The water supply is poor. It's at the edge of a desert. Nothing that would satisfy my fifth grade geography teacher as the reason for a city to be located in a particular place exists in Jerusalem. <clears throat> However, archaeologists do note that in the strangely shaped rock that sits under the dome of the rock and is the original peak of the Temple Mount, there is a cave in the rock. And apparently, this is a burial cave from the Bronze Age, from 4,000 years ago. And at that time in ancient Canaan, the cult of the dead was a popular form of religion. So apparently, this place was holy 4,000 years ago. That is to say, 1,000 years before David conquered Jerusalem. And when David did conquer Jerusalem, he actually bought the site that became the Temple Mount. And the Bible says that it was a threshing floor. Now, again, archaeologists have pointed out to me that the Canaanite god, Baal, was sometimes represented in the shape of a grain of wheat. Very likely, the threshing floor was a cultic spot. When the book of Samuel says that David bought a threshing floor, it's likely that the original readers of the book understood that that was a euphemism for a holy place. Come out and say it, because it wasn't quite nice to say that the Temple Mount was the location of a previous temple place, but it was implied. It was said and not said at the same time. Uh, so it would appear that the reason for Jerusalem being there is because of the place that is today known alternately as the Temple Mount or Al-Aqsa, the furthest mosque. The product of Jerusalem is neither oil nor uh, manufactured goods or anything else. It is sanctity. And the Israelites did what every other conqueror does at a holy place. They evicted the previous divine resident and installed their own at this holy place. And later conquerors did the same. And by the way, that's not unique to Jerusalem. The Grand Mosque of Cordoba became a church when the Christians conquered Andalus, Spain. And the most fabulous church of Constantinople became a mosque when the Muslims conquered Constantinople. In the city of Bukhara in Central Asia, I was once showed the oldest mosque in Central Asia, under which archaeologists say there is both a Zoroastrian temple and a Buddhist temple. So the human habit of keeping a place holy but changing to whom it is holy is, is well established. There is a subtext of if you own the holy place, you own the truth. If your God lives there, he's the real God. Second trick question. How many times does the word Jerusalem occur in the Torah, or for that matter, in the Koran? Just think of a number in your mind. The answer to both questions is zero. The first of the hundreds of times that Jerusalem occurs in the Bible is in the book of Joshua. It does not occur in the true founding book of Judaism, the Torah. There is a mention of the city of Shalem, which may be Yerushalayim, which, by the way, was the place of a priest to the Most High God, perhaps a recognition already in the book of Genesis that the city was holy before the Israelites got there. And perhaps more important, Genesis refers to the land of Moriah, which is where Abraham was sent 
to sacrifice his son Isaac on an altar. And in the book of Chronicles, the last book of the Hebrew Bible, <coughs> the place that the temple is built is identified as Mount Moriah. So if you put the two things together, the Temple Mount is the place where Abraham was tested with the commandment to sacrifice his son. The ultimate experience of the founding father of Judaism, according to this association of names, took place at the Temple Mount. Now, historically, it's quite clear that a late book of the Bible has used a name from the first book of the Bible to add sanctity, mythic power, to the place where Solomon built his temple. And besides that, there's great debate among historians and archaeologists of whether Solomon ever lived, and Abraham's historical existence causes even more debate, and that makes no difference whatsoever. When my son's fourth grade class and the parents got a tour of the old city of Jerusalem a few years ago, the completely secular Israeli travel guide pointed up at the Temple Mount and said, that's where Abraham bound his son to the altar. That's the fact. The story is the fact. The story in Jerusalem is the strongest reality. Now we'll go to the Quran. In Surah 17 of the Quran, it says, Glory be to him who made his servant go by night from the sacred temple, or the sacred mosque, you can translate it either way, to the further temple, al-Masjid al-Aqsa. Al-Aqsa, any Muslim will tell you, is Jerusalem, the furthest mosque. Muhammad went on a night journey from Makkah, from Mecca, to Al-Aqsa. From there, he rose to heaven, spoke with God, and received the commandment of prayer five times a day, such that when any Muslim prays, he is, in effect, reenacting Muhammad's ascent to heaven. It is the furthest mosque, not because it is the furthest away. In that case, maybe it would be located in Santa Barbara. But because it is the place where the ultimate religious individual underwent the ultimate religious experience. Now, as a historical aside, historians say it was probably 150 years between Muhammad and the time that Muslims agreed that that reference to Al-Aqsa in the Quran referred to Jerusalem. The word Jerusalem in any form does not occur in the Quran. And again, history is irrelevant because when a Muslim reads that verse, he is reading or she is reading about Jerusalem. Now, in the New Testament, Jerusalem indeed appears, and it is the site of the ultimate religious experience of the ultimate figure of faith. And once again, I stress, it does not matter the debates among the scholars of what in the Gospels is historical fact, what was added later. When a believer reads the text, this is what happened in Jerusalem. Last trick question. The latest round of violence between Israelis and Palestinians is known by Palestinians as the Al-Aqsa Intifada. So did the Al-Aqsa Intifada in fact begin at Al-Aqsa? That sounds like who's buried at Grant's tomb, right? You know, the Al-Aqsa Intifada. Well, Ariel Sharon insists, or insisted when he was still able to insist anything, that his visit there in September 2000 did not set off the Intifada, that this was merely a pretext for rebellion. And this is a very old story in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. The 1929 riots 
in Palestine began at the Western Wall, and the 1996 conflict between Israeli and Palestinians began with the tunnel that Israel opened running next to the Temple Mount, which Palestinians erroneously said went under the Temple Mount. And for that matter, in the 1980s, the early 1980s, a small band of Israeli settlers plotted to blow up the Dome of the Rock, but that was actually, many would argue, really about their attempt to stop the pullout from Sinai by reigniting the conflict with the Arab world. None of these events, many historians will insist, is, were really about the Temple Mount or Al-Aqsa. Uh, there is a national struggle for over 100 years. Nationalism isn't about God. Nationalism is about a group of people who shares a land, a history, and language, and wants to share political institutions. For 100 years, there's been a conflict between the nation of Hebrew speakers and the nation of Arabic speakers over possession of the land. 1929 was the first countrywide explosion reflecting Arab resistance to Zionism. It wasn't about the Temple Mount. 1996 was about the breakdown of the Oslo process. It was a dress rehearsal for 2000. This is a very restricted view of history. This is a view of history that assumes that symbols are not important, or at the very least, as is also common, it assumes that other people's symbols could not possibly be that important. They don't move me, right? So how could they be so important? But the problem is that Jerusalem is a city that is there because of a symbol. Jerusalem is a city in which the stories that people tell are the strategic facts. And that is the reason for the conflict over it. And at the center of that conflict is the Temple Mount, is Al-Aqsa. And there is no neutral language for that place, which is in itself part of the story of Jerusalem. Physically, when you go to Jerusalem today, what you see at the Temple Mount it doesn't look like a mountain. It looks like a shoebox, very large stone shoebox. It's a box of a building built over the original mount because from the time that Solomon built his temple, there are various rulers up to Herod uh, kept expanding the area of the temple by building walls out around the mount, building vaults, and expanding the plaza. So the original mount is inside of that stone box. <clears throat> and the western wall is one side of that box. After the destruction of the second temple by the Romans, naturally they built a temple to Jupiter there. What else would you do with a holy place except remove in your God? And after the Muslim conquest in the 7th century, the Muslims built the Dome of the Rock, apparently on the spot of the temple, and the building of Al-Aqsa Mosque at the southern end of the plaza. The new religion took the place of the old. The Dome of the Rock is built in the architectural forms of the Byzantine church, except that the decoration is most magnificent on the outside so that it dominates the city and its environs. So anybody who's coming in sees that this holy place is above the churches of the city. The verses of the Quran that are inside of the dome, there's a series of verses, I'll just read you two of them. Say, he is God, one, God, the everlasting refuge, who has not begotten and has not been begotten. Who is this addressed to? So believe in God and his messengers, and say not, three, refrain, it is better for you. God is only one God. The verses inside of the mosque 
are a rejection of Christianity. The location is an indication that Islam now occupies the space of the temple. It is the physical symbol of the supersession of Judaism and Christianity by Islam, that a new religion now occupies the place that indicates truth. Uh, I can't write all this when I write a news article. What I write is, it, there's a paragraph. I don't have to re rewrite it each time. I just call it up as a file, right? And it says that the Temple Mount is the place where the first and second temple stood, dealing with history here, and where, according to Islamic tradition, Muhammad arrived on his night journey. I've already moved from history to sacred history, even inside of a news story. But the sacred history is much richer than that and goes back much further and forward much further. There is a rabbinic tradition dating back to the classical period that the Temple Mount is where the creation of the world began, where Adam was created. And Maimonides, summing up that tradition in the Middle Ages in the Laws of the Temple, chapter 2, wrote, the place of the altar in the temple is precisely chosen the tradition known to all is that this is where Noah built his altar when he left the ark, and it is the altar where Cain and Abel sacrificed, and it is where Adam offered a sacrifice when he was created, and there he was created. The sages said he was created at the place of atonement, right? The altar is for atonement of sins. Adam was created at the place of his atonement. And of course, since the destruction of the Second Temple in Judaism, the phrase, may the temple be rebuilt, is synonymous with may the Messiah come. So it's where things began, and it's where things will end. A member of the Islamic movement in Israel taught me the following hadith, tradition attributed to the prophet. The prophet was asked, what was the first mosque? And he replied, the haram in Mecca built by Adam, right? That's Islamic tradition is that Adam was a monotheist and he built the first mosque in Mecca. <clears throat> so the prophet was asked, what was the second mosque? And he responded, Al-Aqsa. And he was asked, how many years were there between the first and the second? You know the answer to this question. 40 years. It had to, everything is always 40 years, right? So um, Adam built the first mosque in Mecca and the second mosque in Jerusalem. It is also the location of the end. Sheikh Bassam Jarrar, a Hamas-linked scholar of Islam who lives in Albira, has said, summing up Islamic tradition, Islam began in Mecca and will reach its conclusion in Jerusalem. There are other hadith, other traditions that say that the final judgment will take place in Jerusalem. In the end of days, a bridge will be stretched from Al-Aqsa to the Mount of Olives, and it will be as wide as a hair, and the souls of all who have ever lived will have to walk that bridge, and the righteous will walk across, and the damned will fall into the fires below. That is the final judgment. Now, obviously, in Christianity, this is the stage of the founding story. Jerusalem, in general, is where the passion takes place. I will just add <clears throat> that the temple is a critical part of that stage. In the Gospel according to Matthew, it, it is written, And Jesus went into the temple of God and cast out all them that sold and bought in the temple, 
and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves. Okay, this is a pretty well-known story. Note that in the book of Zechariah, the, uh, in the Hebrew Bible, at the end of the book, which is a vision of the last days, the prophet says, in that day, when the Messiah has come at the end of time, there shall be no more traders, no more merchants in the house of the Lord of hosts. What Matthew is describing is Jesus demonstrating that the end has come, that he is the Messiah by fulfilling Zechariah's vision at the temple. It is true, though, that for most of Christian history, while Jerusalem has been critical to Christianity, the Mount itself was not, because Jesus predicted that not one stone would be standing on another at the temple, left standing on another at the Temple Mount, or so say the Gospels. <clears throat> In the last century and a half, a theology has become influential among conservative Protestants, particularly fundamentalists, which is known as dispensational premillennialism. I want you all to write that down. There will be a spelling test at the end of the lecture. <clears throat> it focuses on the impending return of Jesus, the second coming, and based on a literal reading, or what it claims is a literal reading of Daniel and of the Gospels, dispensationalism says that the second coming can only occur when the Jews return, after the Jews have returned to the land of Israel, and after the desecration of the temple in Jerusalem. Now, Daniel and the Gospels were both written before the temple was destroyed. This is immaterial to dispensationalism. There must be a temple in order for it to be desecrated. Rebuilding the temple is therefore critical for the end to take place. In 1970, the most influential popularization of dispensationalism, a book called The Last Great Planet, The Late Great Planet Earth, was published. I remember being in high school in Los Angeles and seeing Christian friends walking around with the late great planet Earth and sometimes trying to convince me of everything that it said. These conversations were not pleasant sometimes. Um, in any case, Lindsay writes, the Hebrew prophets predicted that as man neared the end of history as we know it, that there would be a precise pattern of events which would loom up in history. And all of this would be around the most important sign of all, that is the Jew returning to the land of Israel. The Jew is the most important sign to this generation. And further on in the book he writes, there remains one more event to completely set the stage for Israel's part in the last great act of her historical drama. That is to rebuild the ancient temple of worship upon its old site. So among dispensationalists, who are not the majority among evangelicals, but are a very influential and politically active group. There is an incredibly intense interest in Israel, in the Temple Mount, and in the small fringe of Israeli groups who want to rebuild the temple. According to dispensationalism, by the way, when the second coming takes place, the Jews will either die or convert. And yet, the Jews are bringing the second temple by having established their state. There is a further contradiction buried under this. This is the theology behind so-called Christian Zionism, behind uh, John Hagee's Christians United for Israel and other such uh, groups. If you are a believer in the Bible as a literal word-for-word -word truth as Christian fundamentalists understand it, you face cognitive dissonance. 
there is, there, the sea is not being opened today, and the university professors teach that humanity was created through evolution and not in a six-day process. The world rejects your belief, and there is precious little obvious, explicit, headline-making proof. But the Jews have returned to their land, right? The theology says this should happen, and it's happening. And so there's a lot of affection for people who prove you right, especially when you really want that proof. The problem is, the dissonance built into this relationship is that the Jews also are known in this theology as the people who rejected Jesus. So they are at the same time the proof of the theology and the rejectors of the theology. And that is the tension built into this relationship with Israel and with the Temple Mount. The Temple Mount, or Al-Aqsa, embodies in three religions, at least in groups within three religions, the entire drama of cosmology. Creation, the founding of faith, the resolution at the end of time. It is the center of the world, the center of faith. You can take the bus there, you get off at Damascus Gate, please step past the garbage. It's a few minutes walk from the gate. It's a real place. It is a very dangerous thing for a place loaded with that much myth to be real. We could read all of the texts that I've discussed as allegories. In my English copy of the Quran, there's a little footnote on the night journey that says some Muslim commentators give a literal interpretation to this passage, other regard it as a vision. Okay, maybe Muhammad only had a vision that he went to Jerusalem. Sorry, to Al-Aqsa. Maimonides, who wrote that humanity was created at the place of atonement, was the master of allegorical interpretations of the Torah. And it's a beautiful statement when you think about it as an allegory. What that statement means is God created human beings with the potential to err and the potential to be forgiven. Right? That's the allegorical reading, which I assume, having studied Maimonides, is what he meant. But, you know, symbols can be separated for most of us from their meaning. I am very fond of my wedding ring, but if I lost it, I would still regard myself as being married, right? The ring and the wedding are not the same thing. But ironically, modernity has brought a wave of literalism in interpreting these texts. There's a lot of reasons for it. Um, one of them is that the Enlightenment, the modern era, removed authority ultimate authority from people's lives. And for some people, that creates a sense of freefall, of vertigo. How do I know that what I believe is the right thing? Ah, there is a text. If I read it literally, it tells me what God wants. It's an anchor. That's one reason for the attraction of the literal reading precisely in the modern era. So Adam created at the temple means this smot. Give me the map coordinates. Muhammad actually leapt from that spot, and the Antichrist will literally desecrate it. The symbol is the reality. Yehud Etzion, one of the leaders of the, the, really the ideologue of the attempt in the early 80s to blow up the Dome of the Rock, told me that part of their reasoning for doing it, or for trying to do it, was that the Muslims were powerful because they own the spot from which divine energy flows. He meant that literally. Beyond the religious issue, there's another one. There's nationalism. Nationalism is a supposedly secular phenomenon. 
The ultimate value is not God, but the nation, the people who share this language and history and culture. But national communities also want a myth, a story that tells how this community was created. And you can create a myth from scratch. It's easier to buy one off the shelf from a religion. It's easier to take a religious myth and cast it as a national myth. And both Zionism and Palestinian nationalism have as their story about the nation that there was an idyllic past when we lived in our land, a ruptured present of exile, and a glorious future of return. The natural symbol for each to appropriate is the one that stands for the past and the future, the Temple Mount, El-Aqsa. From the beginning of both national movements, the Temple Mount has served, as you will, as a concave mirror that reflects and focuses all the energy of the national movements on one little spot. And of course, that spot is much more likely to burst into flame because of everything being focused there. In 1928, the Zionist leader Menachem Musishkin said, let us swear that the Jewish people will not rest or be silent until our national home is built on our Mount Moriah. Right? The Temple Mount is the symbol of Jewish independence. If you go into any office in East Jerusalem, any Palestinian office, you will find an aerial photograph of El-Aqsa. Much like in traditional Jewish homes, you might find a picture of Jerusalem or of the Temple Mount. If Jewish nationalism is Zionism, Palestinian nationalism could be called Al-Aqsaism. In 1967, the Jews, Israel, conquered the Temple Mount. For Jewish, for Jewish nationalists, that didn't mean, except for a very small group, rebuilding the Temple. But the words, the Temple Mount is in our hands, was a symbol of the completion of the Jewish return to the homeland of Jewish sovereignty. Naomi Shemer, the kibbutz-born pop singer who did not talk about God, did say in her famous song, Jerusalem of Gold, we've come back to the market in the square, a shofar calls on the Temple Mount. That's the moment of, that's the consummation of the marriage between, between the Jews and their land. Um, for Muslims, Al-Aqsa under Jewish rule is the ultimate symbol of occupation, of Islam under threat. So on both sides, owning this spot is the symbol of the completion of the national drama. And only one side, so it seems, can own the spot. In 2000, at the failed Camp David summit, I mean, one could write a lot on what went wrong at that summit, and much will yet be written. But one of the key issues was the status of Jerusalem and of the Temple Mount of El-Aqsa. It had been left to the end, and in hindsight, it's clear that Israel assumed going into these talks that obviously the Temple Mount would be under Israeli sovereignty, and the Palestinians were certain that El-Aqsa had to be theirs. How else could they have independence? This is a symbolic representation of many other problems in the peace process. So Ehud Barak, then Prime Minister, suggested that the Palestinians have de jure administration over the Temple Mount under Israeli sovereignty. 
and that a spot be set aside on the mount for Jewish prayer. The Palestinian pollster Khalil Shikaki said to me afterward, Barak's talk about Jerusalem, about Jewish sovereignty and the synagogue and praying rites, all of a sudden the idea of building the third temple, which before it seemed only a few Israelis think about, became real in the Palestinian mind. It looked mainstream. Instead of this being perceived as a compromise, it was perceived as proof that the Jews really want Al-Aqsa. Arafat and other Palestinian spokesmen responded by denying that there was no Jewish history at Al-Aqsa whatsoever. It was a purely Islamic spot. To Jews, this was also a symbolic statement. You are colonists. We accept your existence de facto because we have no choice, but you don't belong here. Even the Temple Mount isn't a part of your history. A very left-wing Israeli friend said to me, I'm censoring this statement. There are several words in this quote that I'm not repeating. He said, if we don't have any history there, where do we have history? This process, which was supposed to be reconciliation, appeared to be the opposite to Israelis when Palestinians denied any Jewish connection to the Temple Mount. So... Yes, the process did break down over the mount as it symbolized all the other issues. The question which I'll end is, are we prisoners of these symbols and stories? There is a regular argument, for instance, that Hamas, the Islamic movement among Palestinians, can't change because it's religious. You know, Fatah, the secular nationalist movement, can change, but Hamas can't. This is complete nonsense because religions change. In fact, I've already talked about some of the changing ideologies inside of religion. Symbols have multiple meanings. They can be taken back from the sorcerer's apprentices who have used them. When the Pope visited Jerusalem in March 2000, he paid a visit to both Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Memorial, and to the Western Wall and the Temple Mount. This was an indication of John Paul II's understanding that one speaks through symbols. To express reconciliation with Jews, he had to visit the Western Wall. Two days before he came there, there was a protest by far-right Israeli groups who wanted to rebuild the temple at the West. They, built, they had a protest at the Western Wall Square. And I asked one of them after the protest, why do you object to the Pope coming to the Temple Mount? And he said, I don't object. The Pope could still convert to Judaism and offer sacrifices at the temple. After all, it says in Isaiah, my house will be a house of prayer for all people. Two days after that, the Pope actually came. And the one rabbi who was then in the Israeli cabinet, Michael Melchior, was chosen to greet the Pope. And he said, I'm glad to greet you to pray at the Western Wall because after all, it is written in Isaiah, my house will be a house of prayer for all peoples. The same verse could have a meaning of conflict or of reconciliation. The meaning of the symbol is still in our hands. To resolve the conflict over Jerusalem, we will have to find ways to tell the stories differently, to make the Temple Mount and Al-Aqsa a symbol of the one God whom we all worship, rather than our attempts to own that God. And with that, I'd like to finish with one final story. There is a midrash, an ancient Jewish interpretation of the Bible on it, the story of Cain and Abel. And like any good Jewish story, there are at least three opinions in it. 
And the question that the rabbis were dealing with 2,000 years ago is, why did Cain kill Abel? What were they actually arguing about? Because there's a weird verse. It says, and one said to the other, and then it doesn't say what they said. So the rabbis tried to fill in the missing line. So one of them said a sister had been born along with them, and they were arguing about who got the woman. This is the Freudian interpretation of violence, right? It's all about sex and possession. The second rabbi said no. They decided to divide the property of the world between them. One was going to get the movable property, and one was going to get the real estate. The one who got the movable property said to the other, strip, you're wearing my clothes. And the one who got the real estate said, fly, you're standing on my ground. Okay, it's about ownership. This is the Marxist interpretation of violence. All violence is about uh, materialism. And the third rabbi said, no, they agreed to split the world. They agreed to split the real estate and the movable property. And then one said, and I get the spot where the temple will be built. And the other said, no, I get the spot where the temple will be, the temple will be built. And as this argument continued, one killed the other. This was a person of faith saying that if you claim the truth, if you claim to own the path to God, if you claim to own God's mountain, if you mistake owning the symbol for having the truth, the result is fratricide. And in Jerusalem, we still need to break that pattern. Thank you very much. One perception that um, may be incorrect is that a place where there's a lack of equivalency on acts of terror is that there was a, a huge sense of shock and mourning uh, in Israel and among Jews throughout the world in response to that evil act, the, the Goldstein Massacre, um, that we Jews look to see what the reactions are to acts of terror that are visited upon Israel, and we don't see the same thing. And that's, that's, a, that's a place of pain, and that's a place of mistrust, which gets me to, to my question. You, you said that one of the prerequisites for any solution involving the Temple Mount requires an acknowledgement from both, both sides of the sacredness of the space to the other. And I think that's true. One of the perceptions that I have as a Jew that, that you may tell me is wrong, and, I, and that's really where I'm going to ask you the question, is that Israelis have been better at respecting the sanctity of, of Muslim sites and have, where they've had control of those sites, they've preserved them and they've respected them. And there's a perception that I hear often repeated that, that Muslims have desecrated Jewish sites, that there's a lack, of, a lack of respect. For a solution to work, there has to be an ability to trust on both sides. So part one of the question is, is that perception fair? That, that Jews have been better at respecting those sites. And the second part of the question is, what needs to happen practically to start to engender that sense of trust on both sides? There is, um, I think that Israel has been, has been uh, since 67, has in one sense broken a historical tradition, blessedly broken a historical tradition. It's the first conquest where, of the Temple Mount, long concept, conquest that the conqueror perceived as a long-term conquest. I'm, I'm leaving out here the British conquest because that was always perceived as a temporary rule. But it's unusual in that, is, that Israel did not try to change who was actually praying at the Temple Mount. 
Um, I've written much more about the, the dynamics of that and some of the strange and, and, and frightening moral contradictions that that led to, and I'm not going to try to explain that here because um, it took me a lot of pages to explain it. <laughs> um, enough that I came back to it twice, and, and I'm still looking for more documents to explain it better. But in 1967, Israel uh, did something unusual in that it left day-to-day control, uh, -day control of al-Aqsa of Haram sharif in Muslim hands. That said, uh, the difference is relative and not absolute. The Israeli handling, for instance, of the Tomb of the Patriarchs has been consistently um, a very serious problem. Um, the behavior of Jewish extremists at the site, often protected by an embarrassed but still protective Israeli army, has um, served to uh, fan the conflict there. I mean, examples are the simple thing of, of Jews coming in with wine to celebrate Purim at the Tomb of the Patriarchs, which is also a mosque. Um, and that's a very mild example of some of the things that have gone on there. On another level, I think that a lot of Jews uh, have... Let me put it this way. I think people are most interesting when they're doing things that are contradictory. Um, and I, I have such a strong, I should say, literary bias that I most believe accounts of people when they're contradictory. Uh, and there is a contradiction in the Israeli attitude toward the Temple Mount. And that contradiction is at the same time acknowledging that it's a Muslim holy place and constantly very mainstream people being upset when the Muslims act like it. Right. For instance, one of the normal things that people do with their holy places is that when more people come there, they improve them and they fix them up and they do work and when the electrical cables burn out they replace the electrical cables and every time that happens at the Temple Mount there's huge uh, in fer ferment in Israel about the idea that you know they dug this trench there and it's destroying history and which is sort of the, the subtext there is they stuck their holy place on top of our history both things are going on at the same time and when I say mutual recognition I'm not saying that the two sides are exactly equivalent in their denial of the other. But I do think that it hasn't sufficiently soaked in on the Israeli side that this place which is really central to our history, and believe me, if I wasn't affected by history and symbols, I wouldn't be living in Jerusalem, okay? So I'm not denying the power of these things. I wouldn't be writing about this subject if it didn't affect me. But there's a need on the Israeli side to accept that, that that holy place is really there and it's really holy to them even though it's the split place that's holy to us. There's, there's still a psychological step to be taken there. Even if the attitudes today, I'm not trying to draw an equivalence between them. So the second part about the practical question of what can engender trust, is, is, that, is that just an impossible question to answer at this point? What can engender trust about about, well, in particular, the Temple Mount, the, 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 the Al-Aska Mosque, but, but in general, uh, res 
respect for police ICE as a, as a prelude to, to a stable peace? Uh, I think that, that a lot of very practical arrangements have to be made virtually at every site, and we've only mentioned a couple of them now. I can't tell you, for instance, how many Sheikh's tombs, which were popular uh, holy places, folk holy places for Muslims, have become the tombs of prophets and rabbis since 1967. <laughs> they keep getting converted. <laughs> I, I hardly have ever um, asked a question. I'm usually on the, on the podium, but I hope you'll allow me to ask a you question. You too can ask a question. And I'm sorry, is it all right if I go ahead of you? Sure. Okay, thank you. Um, you ended in a very uh, positive way, Gershom. You said, the symbols are still in our hands. Um, if I'm, it's a relatively accurate quote. So what concrete, practical steps can you give us to take back the meanings of symbols, which in the present at the present time seem to be in those, in the hands of people who want to give very exclusivistic and intolerant interpretations of the symbols? How do we do that? Well, I don't have any simple answers to that question. But I, I, my first sort of statement is it requires a lot of work. I, I would say, for instance, just as a thought, I'm just throwing this out. If I were on the team writing a peace agreement that I would really like to see made, I would have the sense to begin that agreement uh, with a verse from the Torah and a verse from the Quran and perhaps a verse from the New Testament expressing the universalistic side of each of those religions, or the peace-oriented side of each of those religions. In other words, I would begin the agreement recognizing that an element of this agreement is a um, religious agreement. I would make sure that clergy were involved in the negotiation and not just uh, uh, politicians. Uh, those would be beginning spots to do it. And I would, as I said before, I would say that the signing of the agreement in some way would also, or the declaration of the agreement would have to involve some sort of ceremony that would recognize the religious power of, of that spot. Those are, those are first thoughts. I think we have time for one more question. Hi. Um, I uh, am also a religious Jew, and I, I grew up going to religious school my entire life, although I wasn't religious myself until I moved away from Los Angeles where I grew up and I came here and I kind of, my father had passed away at the same time and I, I really needed a minion but I didn't have one because I was in Santa Barbara. <laughs> and uh, you know, I, I study Torah and I pray and like, I, I, there's always like certain phrases which stay in my, in my mind all day and I try to interpret them and try to figure out what I need to do in order to fulfill what it says. And sometimes I like there's like confusion as to what that is. And one specific phrase which I'm co confused about is in uh, Tehillim 137. It says, If I forget Jerusalem, then forget my right hand. And I like I think about this, and you know when you read it, you have a lot of feeling, and like you, you feel it. But I don't really understand what what does it mean to forget Jerusalem? Like, what constitutes forgetting Jerusalem? What, what do you think that means as a religious Jew? 
you know, living in the middle of a place, it's hard for me to imagine forgetting it. <laughs> um, I don't have a quick answer for that question. There's just too much there. We can sit over a page of text and study at some other point, but I'm not going to try to answer that question from the podium. Okay. Thank you very much. <laughs> Before we end our time here in the Corwin Pavilion, let me just remind you that Gershom Gorenberg is going to be seated in the back uh, to sign um, his two books. Remember, there's a wonderful book on the Temple Mount, and in his most recent book, Accidental Empire, um, both of which are available thanks to our friends at Borders, and he will be in the back to sign them. Thank you very, very much. Let us uh, thank Gershom once again. You've been listening to a podcast from University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at www.uctv.tv. Thank you for listening.